Good evening. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We are in our series on the Ten Commandments, and tonight we are. We had an introduction message, so our seventh sermon is command number six. And uh, it's the shortest in the Ten Commandments. In the Hebrew, it's only two words. But we'll uh, begin in verse 1, read verses uh, 1 and 2, and then go down to verse 13. Uh, Pastor Tyler and Miss Jenny, pray for them. They're in Oklahoma City tonight at uh, Jenny's doctor. Not an emergency, but she was uh, receiving some treatment. So they'll be headed back home uh, tomorrow, and he'll be preaching on Sunday morning. So that you definitely want to come back uh, for that this Lord's Day. Um, You know, many of the Ten Commandments are offensive and can rub people the wrong way. Uh, Even the first commandment is perhaps the most offensive in a pluralistic culture. Because the, the commandments begin with the God of Israel saying, no one anywhere can worship anyone else. And there's a little bit of exclusivity in that. In fact, there's a lot of exclusivity in that, that he claims to be the only God that deserves worship. Commandment four kind of weirds people out. God tells us to rest. What is that all about? Well, we we talked about that. The seventh commandment really gets under people's skin. Like you're telling me God can tell me who I can and can't have sex with? I mean, that really gets on people's nerves today. And it may seem like the sixth commandment is one of those that's so obvious and and so readily agreed upon that you don't even need to say it. I mean, don't kill people? Everybody's on on board with that one. We may uh, have, have a little bit of a challenge convincing people of number seven, but number six is, I mean, everyone's okay with that, right? You would think. But as we look at the command carefully and look at it through the lens of the rest of Scripture, what we're going to discover is that this command, like all ten of the commandments, goes against our sinful human nature in the same way the others do. And like the other nine, it is brutally, in this case, and and like the other nine, blatantly violated all the time. So let's look at verse uh, 1. And two of Exodus chapter 20, uh, the introduction to the Ten Commandments. And then let's go down and uh, read verse 13. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Verse 13. Thou shalt not kill. Let's pray. Fathers, we look to your word today. I ask that you would do through it what we cannot do for ourselves. That it would reveal the sin in us, reveal the will that you have for us, and that it would give us faith and obedience so that we may follow you through the power of the Holy Spirit and become more like Christ as we follow the path that you've given us to walk. I pray for every Christian here that's under the sound of my voice tonight that you would challenge us and convict us and correct us and show us the ways that we violate this law of yours. 
And I, I pray for every non-Christian that may be here, every, uh, and any unconverted person who may be listening to this sermon and listening to the Scripture and feel uh, guilt and shame as we not only look at this commandment, but look at how Jesus unpacks it, I pray for that person that they wouldn't stay in their guilt and shame, but that you would use that to point them to the Lord Jesus who will welcome them with open arms if they repent of their sin and believe in his death in their place. Use your word to accomplish those things tonight. I ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll begin by looking at the meaning of the sixth commandment. Uh, when God says not to kill, um, there, there are multiple Hebrew words that could be translated kill. Uh, in fact, often there's a different word, muth, that would, um, that would be translated put to death. Or it would also be used when you're talking about animal uh, death. But there's a specific word here that... Uh, God uses through Moses, and it's pronounced rasak, but what it means is to murder or slay. Literally, it means to cut to pieces. And there's a distinction here in the words between uh, putting a criminal to death, and the law will talk a lot about that, we'll talk about that too tonight, and what we would call murder. That is what the law has in mind, what the law is forbidding here is not all kinds of uh, endings of life, but rather specifically murder, the willful taking of an innocent life. That is what God is condemning. God's people have always recognized that there are situations when life taking is not only permitted, but warranted. One of those would be self-defense. And, of course, the reason we practice self-defense is out of love for other people. If there is a serial killer going around and killing everyone and you refuse to step in and you are able to, then that would not be a loving thing to do, right? If you value human life, in some cases, uh, you have to end it. And just war, uh, a war that's legitimate and a war that protects people and will keep people from being slaughtered would be an extension of the principle of self-defense. That is, because life is good and life is valuable and people are created by God, sometimes you have to have wars to prevent the extermination of of people. Now, of course, not all wars are just and not all wars are necessary. uh, But for Christians, we recognize that some of them are because of the value of human life. Now, capital punishment's another example. Genesis 9, 6 introduces this. In fact, uh, Genesis 9 also gives us the logic of capital punishment. I realize a lot of people don't like capital punishment today, and they think of it as a very political issue, but it's biblical way before it's a political issue. And here's the logic given in Genesis 9. Even before there was a, a, a Jewish nation, God said that uh, murderers would be put to death because people are made in God's image. Now, this may seem counterintuitive, and some of you may not even like it, uh, but it's worth thinking about that how a society, and some of you may know that the, the Parkland shooter in Florida surprisingly did not get the death penalty pretty, pretty recently, um, but, but how a society treats murderers and how, how, uh, how much justice they're willing to serve to murderers reflects whether or not that society believes in the dignity of life. Again, that may seem counterintuitive, but to refuse to put a murderer to death, especially someone who's murdered a lot of people, 
is a failure to recognize and believe in the dignity of human life. That is not my logic, that is God's logic, and that's what the Bible teaches. And this is not just some sort of Old Testament thing. Paul upholds this in Romans 13 when he says that we should support when government executes righteousness uh, via the sword. And, you know, the Romans didn't use, like, the sword to tap people on the head. He's talking about capital punishment. It's, it's pretty clear. And again, if you disagree, I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. But the Bible's pretty clear on this issue. Now, the goal of self-defense, the goal of uh, just war, all these exceptions that we have, all these kinds of killings that aren't murder, the goal with all of them is the same. That is not the destruction of life, but the ultimate preservation of life, right? And because the Bible teaches the preservation of life, then murder is a gross sin. Not only does murder devalue the person being murdered, being killed, but especially the God who created that person. Preservation of life is important because man is not an accident. We didn't get here on our own. We didn't just appear. We're more than a clump of cells. People, man and woman, boys and girls, are created in the image of God. Now, I want to show you a picture of a a painting. Um, I don't know if it's still on display there, but the last time I was in Kansas City, um, this painting, which is, uh, it's hard to, to see in the picture just just how large it is, but it's, it's incredible. Um, it's a painting of uh, lilies by Claude Monet. It's in the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. If you're ever in Kansas City, I know some of you go there on, like, for vacations or trips sometime. That's a, it's a free museum. It does not cost a thing to enter, at least last time I was there. And um, when they had this on display, it was just breathtaking, just breathtaking. Um, I want you to imagine if I was to go into this art museum and go to Monet's uh, Water Lilies painting and start to spray paint graffiti on it. Now, that would probably be my last trip to that art museum, right? Maybe to any art museum. I don't know if they, like, communicate with each other or not. And if I would get kicked out of all of them, uh, that that would not be okay. Why? Well, it's a valuable painting. It's a valuable painting. Now, when I'm drawing pictures with Evangeline and I draw a stick man, she throws it away. And, and, and nobody makes a big fuss about that, in, including me. And the reason is because my uh, pictures of stickmen are not valuable. And I don't need a, a, a slide to show you why that is. That is valuable. Now, you don't have to like art museums or not. You don't even have to like Monet or Impressionist painters. If you're not, some of you may think, I don't even know what an Impressionist painter is. That's not the point. The point is, if you deface a valuable piece of art, our society does not look kindly on that. And there's a reason for that, and that is this. Valuable art is worth preserving. When an artist puts this much work and this much effort into creating something beautiful and meaningful, then it is an evil thing to deface it, right? God says he has made people in his image. God has put his stamp on every one of us. Like on a Monet painting, you may see his signature in the corner. And that real signature is the difference between a legitimate work of art, and a fake, right? Well, God has put his stamp on all of us, the intelligent and the unintelligent, 
the disabled and the not disabled, the skinny and the large, the southerner and the northerner, the American, the European. God has put a stamp on all of us. Therefore, we are valuable because of the weight and the gravity of our artist. Therefore, to damage life is to deface one of God's masterpieces. Now, I I realize that though God created us in his image, that the fall has changed things, that we are broken, that we don't reflect God, we don't image God as we are meant to, but we are still valuable to God. Even after the fall, we are still made in his image. We are still one of his works of art. And when we deface other people, when we belittle other people, when we dehumanize other people, we are taking a work of art infinitely more valuable than water lilies, infinitely more valuable than that, and we're defacing it. We're doing something worse than spray painting graffiti on a beautiful painting. We're taking something that God of this universe has made and saying we don't care about it. Life is sacred, not common. That's why we talk about the sanctity of human life, which is not a political talking point. It is a Christian belief. So the commandment to not kill is really important for us to pay attention to. Because God calls us to treat other people as if they're his works of art. Not as objects, not as if they're disposable. We humanize people when we treat them as image bearers of an infinitely beautiful God. And we dehumanize them when we treat them as anything less. Obstacles to what we want to do. Annoyances that get in the way. Or expendable. This is defacement of an invaluable masterpiece by the great artist of the universe. And the people that we ignore, the people that we look down on, the people that we hate, the people that we hold grudges against, the people that we refuse to forgive, those are people made in God's image. Those are great works of our artist. And thou shalt not kill this commandment. It's really important for us, and especially in our society today. Because the 21st century at West... Both the, both the states and our influence in other places in the world and Europe, which is really part of the West, uh, the 21st century West, though it seems civilized, is also barbaric. Very barbaric. We are living in angry, violent times, and murder in all its forms, both external and heart murder, and we'll talk about what that is in a minute, is very common. And there is now a callous disregard for Christians a callous disregard for life, I'm sorry, that Christians have referred to as uh, the culture of death. We have more and more mass shootings. They seem less and less surprising, right? You'd have a mass shooting happen and you sort of just swipe the news app like it's not that big of a deal. They're so common. It's in our entertainment, according to the APA, by the time a child finishes elementary school, not high school, elementary school, He will have watched 8,000 televised murders and 100,000 acts of on-screen violence. Some will see more. Then there's violence, violence disguised as human rights, which is becoming more common and is clamoring for acceptance. And there are even so-called Christians 
who argue for violence in the guise of dignity. Elective abortion is one of those things. Um, Physician-assisted suicide is one of those things. Uh, Having uh, parents allowing their children to mutilate themselves through surgery is one of those things. Yes, we are advanced, but we are also very, very barbaric. And of course, that raises the question of what is dignity, right? Because a lot of people will tell you, well, if you believe in the dignity of women, you have to um, allow for abortion. So I understand they believe in a version of dignity, but their version of dignity is unlimited freedom to hurt other human beings if they're in my way, right? Now, now, whatever kind of dignity that is, I promise you, if you, if you, and if some of you are thinking that will satisfy you, the Bible has a much better, more robust version of dignity. It has way more to offer than that. Dignity doesn't mean you get the right to do whatever you want and hurt other people. No, that's not dignity at all. Now, uh, this, I, th- I think really modern-day infanticide is probably the best example of how this command is being violated. Now, it's not the only example. We'll get to other stuff. And if this is making you uncomfortable, well, then um, I'm almost done. But I'm, I'm not done yet. Uh, in, infanticide is not new. And in, in, in human history, it's not even weird. Now, if you know about the history of Christianity and its influence, you'll already know this. But if you don't know how Christianity has changed the world, this may be interesting to you. Uh, infanticide in all cultures in all cultures of the world was the norm. In some places, it still is the norm. And what changed that was missionary activity of Christians going to those places. In the fir- if you imagine the first century to be like some sort of wonderful good old days, then you should probably know that in the Greco-Roman world, in the era when Jesus uh, took on humanity and was born. Um, researchers, historians believe that um, uh, the society was two-thirds male. And, and, and it's not because they couldn't find the females to count them. It's because in, in childbirth, um, female infants were put to death for selective infanticide because they were considered not as valuable. Uh, by the way, that didn't change until Christianity grew in prominence. So the next time someone tells you Christianity is, is anti-woman, don't don't fall for that. It is not true. It's very ignorant. Uh, philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle were for eugenics, and they were quite public about that. Aristotle said that there should be a law that no deformed child shall live. So this is not new stuff. This is actually very old stuff. Paganism is old. Christianity put it in the dark, and it's, it's the same old stuff coming back. Now, why did Christianity challenge infanticide? By the way, that's also a reason that first century and second century Christianity uh, applied to, to so many women, because Christians were telling people, hey, don't kill your babies, even if they're, even if they're female, don't kill them. And people are like, man, there's something to this, right? And that's one of the reasons Christianity grew. But of course, we're seeing the, the resurgence of this all in defiance of the God of Israel who says, thou shalt not kill. We also have physician-assisted suicide, ironically, in the name of human dignity. So where does all this violence come from? Now, we could look at, you know, we could look at cultural changes and, uh, 
how society has changed and the influence of entertainment, all that stuff. But honestly, that, that's not really going to get to the root of the problem. We can look at philosophy books that have been written and uh, popular ways of thinking and how cultures have shifted. Uh, but though you can look at those things, and historically it's interesting to do that, the reason we have a culture of death was explained by Jesus in Matthew fifteen nineteen. Jesus telling uh, a bunch of religious Pharisees who thought that our evil somehow comes from outside of us, right? Here's, that's how they thought. Don't go to lunch with a Gentile. You may have some of that lust rub off on you, then you'll find yourself lusting. That's how they thought. Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts. That was the first thing. You know what the second thing was? Murders. Murders. Every time there's a headline about a killing, what's one of the first questions people are asking? Why would this person do that? Let's look at their history. Maybe they had a weird relative. Maybe they read some propaganda. Maybe they played violent video games. You know, they may have done all those things, but why did they want to do those things? Out of the heart. Out of the heart. The reason our society is violent is because as sinners, we have violent hearts. That is, we have hearts that want to hurt people. We have hearts that look down on people. We have hearts. We, have, we interact with people all the time, even though they're made by a wonderful, glorious, perfect God. We want to deface those things he has made. And it's not because of something outside of us. It's because of something inside of us. God has to tell us not to murder because we have murderous hearts. None of the Ten Commandments are pointless. Each of them goes against what we want to do in our sin, and this command is no exception. If we rebel against our Creator, and by the way, that's what sin is, if we want to say no to God, we're also going to say no to His rules, and that includes having less and less respect for the people that He has made. And the ultimate example of that is taking an innocent life. All right, let's look at an example of disobedience. An example of disobedience. One of the first stories in the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. This is right at the beginning after sin enters the world. And uh, if you want to get like a, um, a heading for Genesis 4 to 11, it's basically this. Well, Genesis 1 and 2 is cr- God creates stuff. Genesis 3 is people sin. And then Genesis 4 and through 11 is people do really bad stuff. That's the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Now you know. Well, the the whole section of people doing really bad stuff starts with this, Genesis 4 and verse 8. It's not on the screen, so you can turn there in your Bibles or, or just listen and I'll read it. And Cain talked with his brother Abel. So far, so good. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. Isn't it amazing that when Adam and Eve sin, they have to have the devil talk them into taking a bite of fruit. Cain has no such conversation. Now, people will tell you, well, you know, the devil told me to do this or the devil told me to do that. And the reason people 
say that a lot is because they don't believe what Jesus says about their heart. If you take seriously what Jesus says about your heart, you won't blame all your temptations on the devil. You'll start blaming them on yourself, right? I know what Jesus says is really hard to swallow. I get it. I get it. But he's right. (laughs) Your worst temptations come from inside of you, not outside of you. Yes, Jesus got tempted by Satan, right? Because Jesus didn't have any internal temptation. Uh, You and I are not Jesus. I mean, we could at least say that. No, Cain doesn't have, Cain doesn't get drawn into this by the serpent. He doesn't need a serpent. You know why? Because he has Cain. So Eve needs to get talked into taking fruit. Cain just goes out, he's talking to his brother, and he kills him. Because he wants to. Because what Jesus said about the human heart is true. Out of the heart come murders. And then, do you see Cain's mindset in response to God? This is really interesting. Um, Because Cain doesn't just murder, okay? Cain has a particular mindset about other human life. He refuses to look at Abel as his responsibility. He refuses to look at Abel's need as his responsibility. He refuses to look at Abel's suffering as his responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? By the way, if you keep reading Genesis, the book of Genesis, the sin in Genesis begins with this question. And if you look at the end of the book of Genesis, it ends with Joseph answering the question, yes. It's amazing testament of what God's grace can do because Genesis 4 starts with a dude killing his brother out of nowhere. Joseph is tortured by his brothers and then saves them all. So if you're discouraged in chapter 4, keep reading. That's all I'm, I'm saying. The Bible has a way of turning things around in the end. So Cain is not tempted by the serpent. Cain is tempted by himself. Why does Cain murder? Because he wants to. He doesn't look at his brother's life as his responsibility. He doesn't look at at, at Abel as his problem. He doesn't look at Abel as as his commitment. Cain looks at Abel differently than God looks at Abel, right? There is a value that God places on Abel, and Cain disagrees with it. He says no, and he puts a different value on Abel than God does. And at the heart of murder, at the very root of this sin of murder, is disagreeing with God about how valuable other people are. And that's why I hope, I hope you get this tonight. You may not have killed someone literally. But the root of that sin is already there if you and God place different value on other human beings. God looked at Abel as his creation that he loved. Cain said, I'm not going to take care of him. I don't owe him anything. And so he killed him. I want to look at Christ in the sixth commandment because this will help us see how we're implicated in this command. What does the coming of Jesus teach us about uh, murder? Go to Matthew chapter 5. Now, we were in Matthew 19 a little bit, but let's go to Matthew chapter 5 to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is going to help us uh, unpack these uh, few words a little bit. Matthew chapter 5, and then I want to to turn your attention to uh, verses 21 and 22. Verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, "'Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, "'Thou shalt not kill.'" And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry 
with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. All of a sudden, the sixth commandment hits a little closer to home, right? I hope it does. I hope you see this. We're not done. Don't get discouraged. Jesus is not, by the way, when Jesus is doing this, you've heard it said, but I'm saying this. Jesus is not correcting the Old Testament teachings. He's not taking the law and saying, no, that's outdated. God is different now. That's not what my father's like. I'm going to teach you this instead. No, Jesus is not doing any of that. Rather, he's unpacking what's already there. He's taking a law and unpacking uh, the meaning behind it, okay? Uh, Here's an example. If you have like a law in England where you can't uh, uh, have a horse and buggy on the side of the road uh, uh, and have it stay there for like six months because it'll get in people's way and somebody parks their car on that same road, they're going to get towed. Why? Because they violated the principle of the law. Because the law was not, had nothing to do with buggies and horses. The law was about not blocking access to stuff. And so this is what Jesus is doing with the command about murder. He's not saying God got it wrong. It's okay to murder. Far from it. He's intensifying and he's, he's using the microscope to say, yes, you can't murder. But there's some other stuff you can't do to, that would violate the principle or the spirit behind the law. So the God that doesn't want you to murder is the same God who doesn't want you to hate people. The the God who is so offended by the taking of innocent life is the same God who is offended when you name call and when you insult people. Jesus is saying that the heart attitude of murder is hatred. It's hatred. So this is Jesus' higher standard then. The heart. The heart. Jesus made it clear that God not only judges our external actions, but even our internal actions, even when it comes to harboring hatred. Now, you can harbor hatred and cover it up. Other people may not know about it. Your friends may not know about it. The people you hate, if you're like really passive and fake, they might not even know about it, right? That's always comforting to think there's probably someone that hates me and I don't know who it is. Right? But you know what? You know what? You can hide that from other people. You can't hide it from God. And God compares this to murder. You say, well, he's stretching it. Well, maybe not. Now, he's not saying the legal ramifications are the same. The Bible doesn't call for capital punishment if you're a hater. We'd all be gone, right? But the spirit of the sin is in the heart of the hater. The heart, even the name-caller. Jesus includes derogatory language as part of this evil. According to Jesus, you break this commandment by being insulting to other people. This is bad news for Christians who essentially use access to the internet to insult people they disagree with. I'm not saying you can't disagree with people. If you're a Christian, you've got to disagree with people. I mean, Paul's pretty clear about that. We're going to have to tell people no to help them, right? not talking about that. I'm not talking about constructing a powerful argument. We should do that. You have a responsibility to do that if you're going to influence other people. I'm talking about instead of constructing powerful arguments and listening and dialoguing with people, just insulting them and calling them names. That's not only ugly and unappealing and bothersome, 
Jesus says it comes out of the same heart that murders. Now, we have freedom of speech. But there's a lot of stuff that our constitution... And by the way, I'm thankful we have freedom of speech. If we lose, that's going to be very hard to do what we do now. I get that. I, I understand totalitarianism is bad. But there are things that the Constitution may allow you to do that Jesus may not allow you to do if you're a Christian. Insulting people is one of those things. Why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because we live in an insult culture. We also live in what's been called an argument culture. An insult, according to Jesus comes from a murderous heart. Do you see why that is? Because, you know, when you, when you kill someone, you're saying you're not worthy of life. Like, you, you, you don't even, you don't, you don't matter enough to exist. I want you dead. And when you insult someone, you're saying you're not worthy of me placing value on you. That's what you do when you name call, right? You're attacking people's worth. You're saying, yeah, I know, like Cain, I know God says you're this valuable, but I'm going to call you this because to me, you're actually this valuable. That's a murderous heart. That's, that it comes from a place where you don't think people are worth what God has already said that they are worth. If you want to know what people are worth, we look to Scripture and we see that Jesus died for our sins, First John, and not for our sins only but for the sins of the whole world. And that's pretty clear. He doesn't mean the whole world of believers or the whole world of people that will get saved. It means what it means, the whole world. Jesus dies for the people that we get annoyed by. He gave his life for people that you are rude to because they don't do what you want to do or they don't get your coffee when you want it or they didn't bring you the right order to the restaurant. Who cares? Like Jesus died for them. Like what's wrong with you? Why do we do that? Because God has said people are this valuable and we'll say, no, God, not to me. They're not. And that is the heart attitude of murder. Jesus has a way forward too. Not only does he call us to a higher standard, but he has a way forward. And for Jesus, the opposite of murder is not just not killing people. Oh, that's a good start. Let's not kill anybody. But there's more than that. Jesus says the opposite of murder he teaches is selfless Love, we're not going to read it for sake of time, but in Luke chapter 10, verses 29 through 37, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, as we call it today. There's a Jewish man who's in a bad part of the highway. He gets attacked. He's robbed. He's half dead. Two religious leaders walk by, his own kin, his own brothers, as it were, in the faith, and they ignore him. The Samaritan stops and takes care of him. Now, Jesus, in the context, is talking to a lawyer about what it looks like to love somebody's neighbor. Uh, When the Samaritan stops, he had no cultural expectation to stop, right? I mean, not even the Levite and the priest would have expected the Samaritan to stop. No one would have expected him to do that. His friends and family, hypothetically, he wasn't real, but hypothetically, if you imagine with me in the story, his friends and family who were Samaritans, they wouldn't have expected him to stop either. So he wasn't just uh, doing his part of the social contract. He wasn't just meeting others' expectations. He wasn't just doing the good old boy thing to do. He was showing radical, uncalled for, at least from, from the culture's perspective, unexpected love by not only helping this man, but helping him with his wounds, taking him to an inn, paying for his stay there so he could, he could recover. 
honoring the sanctity of lives and others for a follower of Jesus means more than not killing them and not insulting them. Although not insulting them and not killing them is the start. It means actively loving people, even people that our culture doesn't expect you to do anything for. The Samaritan couldn't get anything out of the man. He couldn't get paid back by the man. No one knew what he was doing. But that is what it looks like to love our neighbors with compassion and humility. Now, I think, I think it's just so interesting here as we look at Jesus' standards in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus would say, by the way, the word raka, there's an argument about what it means, but it has something, it's something like an airhead or someone who is empty-brained. So you get the idea. It's not a very nice thing to say, right? That's the, that's the idea. We are familiar with the word fool. Um, does it sound to you like Jesus is just being too exaggerative when he says uh, it, that if you say fool that you're deserving of hell? I, I mean, we know that when Jesus was on the cross and died for our sins, we know that he, we, he died for our lies. We know that he died for our false worship. We know that he died for our lust. We know that he died for all those things. But do you and I really believe, do we really believe as Christians that when Jesus was suffering God's wrath on the cross, that one of the things he did that for is all the times that we would call people names that we don't like? I don't know if we believe that. Now, we've read it in the Bible. Some of you have the Sermon on the Mount memorized. You had it memorized when you were a kid. That's wonderful. But do we believe, do we actually agree with Jesus that that's true? That somehow if we could go back and not belittle people and not insult people by calling the names, whether that's people we don't know or people that we do know, or if we could somehow take back that tweet or take back that post on Facebook where we're complaining about politicians that will never meet and that will never meet us, knowing in the back of our head that going back in time and not doing that would have somehow lessened the pain that Jesus was in on the cross, suffering for my sin. I don't know if we believe this. And it really bothers me. But this is how seriously Jesus takes murder. That Jesus not only dies for the sins of those who physically murder, but Jesus dies for the sins of the heart murderers as well. So back to the Samaritan, he shows us that the opposite of murder is, simply, is not simply not killing people, but doing good to them. Martin Luther says this, this commandment, the sixth commandment, is violated not only when a person does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor. You know one of the ways we hate people is by ignoring them? I mean, I mean we can, you know, killing people is very dehumanizing, right? But ignoring people is dehumanizing too. When we treat a person like a non-person, we know others could use some help that's within our power to do, and we pass. We know someone is lonely and needs some friends, but we don't invite them over. We don't share a meal, we don't share a house, which is not really ours, it's God's. And we don't do it because maybe they get on our nerves, or their personality is not like us, or they like a different uh, team, or whatever. And and we ignore them, we treat them like a non-person, we treat them like a non-entity by just pretending they don't exist. And it's one of the ways we hate. Here's some, uh, just some concluding thoughts. Uh, number one, first of all, I, I know this, this sermon could make you feel very guilty because uh, we, we do hate. <laughs> As Jesus said, it's in our hearts, so of course we're going to hate. We do harbor resentment toward other people. 
We are bitter at people. We do ignore people. We treat them like they're invisible. And in that sense, our hearts are murderous hearts. But number one, no one, know this, that no one is out of reach of God's grace. No one is out of reach of God's grace. By, by the way, even people that do physically murder other people can be redeemed and can know the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rest of us that murder people in our hearts can also have that same sin forgiven by Christ as well. N- number two, God's people can harbor the heart attitude of murder. There's a lot of ways we can do this. We've talked about uh, many of them. But I want to ask just maybe a couple of questions to help you assess yourself. You, you need to be the, the person that assesses your own soul. You need to be the person that looks at this commandment and asks right now in my life, how am I violating this? But in order to help you do that self-assessment, I'm just going to ask you a couple questions. When I say the word resent, does a face come to mind? Does the sound of someone's name make you cringe? Are you rude? Maybe to people you know, maybe to people you don't know. Doesn't matter. God knows them. If I asked people who knew you best, or the waiter at your last restaurant, or the last person that helped you on the phone for a call service, because people at call centers are also made in God's image, would they say that you're rude? Do you fantasize about those who have wronged you being humiliated or hurt? Are you bottling up anger inside of your soul and trying to find other ways to deal with it besides confronting your own hatred of a person? I I hope you realize that beyond murder, there are a lot of sins of heart murder that you and I are liable to commit. Number three, Jesus was murdered for murderers. Jesus was murdered for murderers. Now, if you've followed the life of Jesus, you know that his life was not taken justly. If you follow what what happens at the end of the gospel accounts, as Jesus approaches his own death for our sins, we know that Uh, When it comes to what the Jews and the Romans did to Jesus, this was not, uh, this killing was not okay in either Roman law or Jewish law. This was not an execution of a criminal. This was the murder of an innocent person. We define murder as the innocent taking, uh, the taking of an innocent life. Was there anyone who was so innocent as the Lord Jesus Christ? who never sinned, who never disobeyed his father, who never had a wrong thought, and yet his life was taken from him. But why? Why was Jesus' life taken? Well, actually, you know what? It was more than taken. From their perspective, they were taking his life. But you know, from Jesus' perspective, Jesus said, no man takes my life from me, I give it up of myself. Jesus willingly died. That's why it is so significant that he cried out. Because the normal death on the cross was by asphyxiation. He cries out loudly to prove that he can still breathe. And then he dies. Why? Because he gave up the ghost. He let himself die for us. 
You and I, like Cain, don't treat people like we should. You and I ignore people that we should recognize. You and I don't help people that we ought to be helping. You and I pass by people that we shouldn't pass by. You and I are resentful toward people that God calls us to forgive. Yes, no matter what they've done. And because God knew that we would sin in all of these ways and many, many, many more. He sent the Son to die in your place so that you, a murderer at heart, and so that I, a murderer at heart, could be made right with God. And that's what we're given in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I hope that comforts you. I know it it does me. If you're struggling with hatred and you want to know how to get over it, there's no better example that we have to look to than Jesus. And you know what's amazing is as we look to Jesus, as we read these uh, recordings that are in the Gospels of him loving people and helping people, the, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians that the Holy Spirit, as we look to Jesus, changes us so that we become more like the person we're beholding. If you want hatred to diminish in your heart and love to grow in your heart, then look to Jesus. And slowly, the Holy Spirit will make you more like Jesus and less like yourself. And that's a promise I rely on and we all should rely on every day. Let's all stand.